Welcome to the Wilton Baptist Church, where we worship God, walk with others, and win people to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Pastor Steve, and our congregation is pleased to share this message with you today, and we pray it'll be a blessing and an encouragement to you. Blessings as you listen or watch. We're in Ezekiel chapter 4, and we'll also be reading in chapter 5 and 6 as well, but Ezekiel chapter 4. <clears throat> A man was having trouble, great difficulty, communicating with his wife. And concluded that she was becoming hard of hearing. So he decided to conduct a test without her knowing it. One evening, he sat in a chair on the far side of the room. And her back was to him and she could not see him. Very quietly, he whispered, can you hear me? There was no response. Still moving then a little bit closer, he asked again, can you hear me now? Still no reply. Quietly, he edged closer and whispered the same words, but still no answer. Finally, he moved right behind her chair and said, Can you hear me now? To his surprise and chagrin, she responded with irritation in her voice, For the fourth time, yes. <laughs> yes, you get the idea. He was the one hard of hearing. Remember the classic commercials from Verizon. No matter if you're with AT&T or Sprint or some other brand, remember those Verizon commercials? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Classic, instant classic commercials. In a way, God says, can you hear me now in this passage of Scripture? In the opening half of Ezekiel, we find God pronouncing judgment and giving illustrations and object lessons through Ezekiel. In the second part of the, the, the second part of the first half of the book, or the, right in the middle there, we find that the events take place. People die, families are torn apart, and Jerusalem is destroyed because God, when he says something, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time, and always it's about his timing. We could call chapters 4 and 5 that we're going to read through today, Can You Hear Me Now?, or we could use the phrase, they shall know. It's found 46 times throughout the book. 29 times we find ye shall know. And 19 times God says, I, the Lord, have spoken it. You can see Wearsby's outline here of the book. We have the first 24 chapters during or before the siege. So this is one of those I can hear you now part messages. 25 through 32, that's during the siege. And then what we'll eventually get to and really emphasize is chapters 33 through 48, following the siege. Now, we can know that when God says something is going to happen in the future, it's going to happen in the future. And it's all up to his timing. And uh, that's one reason we're really building in these first opening chapters before we get to chapters 33 through 48 to really learn the rest of the story before it takes place. Last time, we skipped ahead to the ultimate portrait of loss as Ezekiel's wife dies, and God gave him a forewarning. He said, your wife is going to die, the delight of your eyes. And Zeke was going to be a sign to the people about how they would respond when the delight of their eyes, Jerusalem, and their temple, their beloved temple, was going to be destroyed, and how they would respond in that time of mourning. 
Well, Jerusalem is surrounded, and the prophecies begin to take place, the prophecies of chapters 1 through 24, and the date is January 15th, 588 B.C., the same day that Ezekiel's wife dies is the same day the siege began. It takes about three years, and in, in their era of warfare, they would besiege somebody or his town or a city, uh, a fortress, and they would just kind of basically starve them out and make sure they uh, couldn't have people be able to escape or identify some of their methods in just a little bit. But that was the day. It takes about three years then to starve them out until it finally falls in Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed. In the meantime, in the opening verses that we're going to be looking at, Ezekiel gives illustrative methods for sharing God's message of judgment. If you're a teacher, if you like to give instruction, there are great object lessons and ideas. You can learn teaching method from Ezekiel. There's some of the things that he does I wouldn't recommend for you to do yourself. And you'll see what I'm talking about here in just a moment. Ezekiel, his personality, sometimes scholars and historians will look at him and say that he was uh, paranoid, that he was neurotic. They've labeled him neurotic or psychotic even. Uh, schizophrenia has uh, been tossed around for the type of uh, way that he uh, portrays himself to the people. And you'll see what I'm talking about as we open up and look at these. We'll begin in verses four, or chapter four, verses one through three. And I'm going to give you the four object lessons as we begin. And the first one here, he's going to build or to draw something. And if you ever played with constructs or Legos or modeled clay, basically it's that. He's, he's building something and to us we would say this looks like a toy. He's using clay because that's the, the parts that he has to build something with. Play-Doh, I guess, would be a good, uh, a good analogy or simile for that as well. So here's the first object lesson. Ezekiel 4, verse 1. Thou also, son of man, that's the most used title that God calls him, son of man, take thee a tile, so this would be a, a clay brick, and lay it before thee and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. So he's making a toy city. He's etching into the soft clay brick. And he says then, lay siege against it and build a fort against it and cast a mountain against it and set a camp against, also against it and set battering rams against it round about. Moreover, take unto thee an iron pan and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city, and set thy face against it, and it shall be besieged. And thou shalt lay siege against it. This shall be a sign to the house of Israel. So if, uh, if you are, uh, say, a tweener and younger, 13 and younger, 15 and younger, we, we would see you, in, and I loved Legos when I was young as well. Maybe you like stuff like that and, and building stuff. And have you ever played with a toy and you're kind of interacting and those little Lego men make it easy because, you know, they're talking and they're building, they're doing stuff, they're riding their horses or, or they're driving the little sports cars you build, and you're playing with that toy. He, he makes this clay semblance of Jerusalem and he's using these different parts. He's, he builds a little rampart up against it. He's laying siege against it. God tells him to do this, and he does. He does this. Uh, so he's to draw and to build. On the soft clay brick, he draws a picture of Jerusalem. He builds a little siege wall, a tower. He connected the two with a ramp and arranged camps or soldiers. He maybe had his little army men, you know, those little green army men you may have played with or your kids or grandkids play with now, okay? He made little men and uh, he besieged them. 
Uh, the strength of the besiegers and the impossibility of escape was represented with this iron plate that was also used. Now, to the casual observer, here's a 30-year-old man playing with his toys. If you read the rest of the chapter, he actually preaches to these toys. He's talking to them. You'll see this in just a little bit. This is why people say, well, he's paranoid, schizophrenic, you know, he's, just, he's out of his mind. This is why they would say that. God told him to do these things. Now, Ezekiel's actions here in the first three verses demonstrate he knew some of the Assyrian-Babylonian fighting techniques. Several, uh, seven aspects stand out. First, he lays siege to the city. Assyrians would do that. They'd lay siege to the city, cut off the water, and cut off food supplies until the people surrendered. Uh, secondly, they would build a wall around the city to surround the city so the inhabitants cannot escape. Third, he constructed an earthen rampart to be able to scale the walls to get up and in whenever they would go in. If, you've, if you go to Israel and know anything about history, that was a popular thing. That's why Masada was the, the last holdout in this era is because it was way up on a mountain to begin with. Fourth, he established a military camp strategically around the city. Fifth, he used battering rams against the walls and the gates. Sixth, he set up an iron wall, this iron pan that God says to use, to represent the iron will of God's judgment and the impenetrable barrier of Babylon's army. And then finally, he set his face against it to suggest God's firm resolve. And this was all a sign to the people. Israel's already been judged as a divided kingdom, Jerusalem, Judah, and in particular Jerusalem and a temple now are going to be judged. So that's the first object lesson. He's playing with toys. Number two, lie down. So notice as we continue, verses four through eight. Lie down thou, uh, thou, uh, lie thou also upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear the iniquity. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, 390 days. So shalt thou bear the iniquity for or of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I've appointed thee each day for a year. So they're going to have captivity for this amount of time. And thou therefore set thy face toward the siege of Jerusalem. This goes back to the toys he just made. And thine arms shall be uncovered and thou shalt prophesy against it. In other words, he's preaching, he's prophesying against the little toy city that he made. And he's to do this for over 300 days. You're talking about over a year he's talking to the toys that he just made and he's laying on his left side and then he's laying on his right side all the time. Behold, I will lay bands upon thee. Thou shalt not turn thee from one side to another till thou hast ended thy siege. Lie down on your left side for 390 days for Israel and lie down 40 days on your right side for Judah. It's possible this would be during normal daylight business hours in which Ezekiel was laying there so that people in his town could see him preaching to the toy city that he just made while laying on his side. God told him to do this, and this is what he's doing. So just imagine he's talking to this many Jerusalem he made. No wonder people probably thought he was mad as he was doing this for way over a year. Number three, the third object lesson in picture is to eat garbage. 
eat garbage, okay? While lying there, eat this bread that is described beginning in verse 9. Look at it. Take thou also unto thee wheat and barley. Okay, that sounds good. And beans and lentils and millet and fitches and put them in one vessel. So these are different types of grains and beans and make thee bread. It'd be a very coarse, rough bread. It's not necessarily ground up like the wheat could be, but this is a real coarse, uh, heavy type bread. According to the number of the days, thou shalt lie upon thy side, 390 days, shalt thou eat thereof. So while he's preaching to the city, while laying, laying on his side, he's supposed to eat this bread. And thy meat which thou shalt eat shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day from the time thou shalt eat, uh, eat it. And that's about eight ounces of food. In our, in our language today, that's eight ounces of bread every day. And notice in verse 11, he's going to have one liter of water a day. Thou shalt drink also water by measure the sixth part of an hen. That's one liter. From time to time thou shalt drink. So throughout the day you have this one liter. Some of you chug a two liter in one sitting. For one day he has one liter the entire day. And thou shalt eat thereof, eat as the barley cakes. Thou shalt bake it with dung that cometh out of man in their sight. Okay, this is disgusting. Human feces. Okay, how, how am I going to bake the bread? Ezekiel, cook it over human waste. Could you, could you do that? No wonder Ezekiel has an anger issue. <laughs> no wonder people are talking about him like he's, he's out of his mind, okay? But God does give him um, some leeway with this because this is the only thing where Ezekiel has some pushback. He does everything else wholeheartedly, but he has some pushback on this. And part of this has to do with his Levitical training as a priest. Because notice what he responds in verse 13. And the Lord said, Even thus shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, whither I will drive them. So this is, this is the reason why, because they're going to end up eating their own manure, their, their own waste as well. But notice verse 14. And I said, Ah, Lord God, behold... My soul hath not been polluted, for from my youth, even until now, have I not eaten of that which dieth of itself, or is torn in pieces, neither came there abominable flesh into my mouth. So think about all the young people here today. Uh, Ezekiel was planning to serve God, and he had some different guidelines that he lived by so that he could serve the Lord faithfully and freely if God called him into the uh, ministry of being a priest. And, of course, he's called to be a prophet instead. So that's just a, a shout-out to all the young people to do right now because you don't know what God may call you to do later. He said, I've never, I've never touched this wicked stuff before. I mean, this is, I've never done this before. And he said unto me, the Lord said then, Lo, I have given thee cow's dung for man's dung, and thou shalt prepare thy bread therewith. And so that's the alternative, have cow dung. It's, it's a lot different. That's all grain-based and grass-based, and so that's not near as bad as human waste would be because of the stuff that we eat. And so uh, he's going to use that instead as an alternative then for that. So basically, eat garbage. Eight ounces a day, cooked over cow dung, and one liter of water for 390 days on your left side and 40 days for Judah on your right side. 
Then finally, and we'll settle in on this and then have the rest of our message, but shave your hair. I thought about bringing some clippers and doing that today, but I thought that'd be too eccentric for our message. Um, Natalie might like that, but I just thought, oh, shave your hair. So while lying in an illustrative protest for 430 days altogether, shave your head and beard and measure it out in thirds. Put it in the midst of the portrait city that you made, the toy city, and set it on fire. Cut up the other third with your knife and then scatter the last third into the wind. Let's read chapter 5. And thou, son of man, take thee a sharp knife. Every man back then would have had a knife because you needed it not only for eating but just for daily tasks and chores. Everyone would have carried a knife, probably a fixed blade knife for those who are interested. And he says, take a sharp knife, take thee a barber's razor, and cause it to pass upon thine head and upon thy beard, and then take thee balances to weigh and divide the hair. Thou shalt burn it with a fire, a third apart in the midst of the city. Then the days, when the days of the siege are fulfilled, and thou shalt take a third part and smite it with the knife. So he's cutting it up with his knife. And a third part thou shalt scatter, throw it up into the wind, and I will draw a sword out after them. Basically, there's going to be great violence following those who are scattered into the wind. Thou shalt take also thereof a few in number. This is actually a fourth group. He divides it up into, th- into thirds, but then he says, take a little bit of extra of these hairs and bind them in thy skirts. Then take them again and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. For thereof shall a fire come forth into all the house of Israel. If you want to write beside that verse, the word remnant, he's describing what we would call today and what we find throughout the rest of the book, a remnant. So save your hair. Take a few random strands as a fourth category in verse 3. And stick them to your clothes, representing how a few faithful will endure. Have you ever found hair on your clothes and you can't get it off? It belongs to your cat, your dog, or to somebody. It's like, where did that hair come from? Okay, this is the remnant that's being illustrated here. With these humiliating object lessons, no wonder Ezekiel had anger issues. It would have been hard to do all these things and have a happy, cheerful attitude. It'd be like you living in Iran by a river and laying on a dirt floor for for 430 days, eating garbage. That's what it would be like. He lived in Iraq. 60 miles south of Babylon, modern-day Iraq. So it would be the same thing. You're in a foreign land, an enemy land, and all of these things that God told him to do is what he was doing. So a third, in this last illustration, would die by pestilence and famine. A third would die from war, and the rest are scattered. They're scattered throughout the world. And then there's strands. This is the remnant, the strands. Since God's people refuse to be an example of righteousness and godliness, and because they refuse to truly follow the Lord, their abominations, their idolatry, God said, I'll do what I've never done before and I'll never do again. Here's how and what will take place. But why judge Israel? They broke their covenant with God. Back in Genesis, many times thereafter, Genesis 17 following, you have this covenant that takes place. It's renewed. It's emphasized. I will be your God and you will be my people, time and time again. And it wasn't truly the case. And so they're going to be carried away, and there will be a remnant. There will be a few like Ezekiel who 
truly follow the Lord. Another contemporary is Jeremiah and Daniel and others like this who truly stayed with the Lord. But let's focus on this remnant for the next few moments because God's remnant hear the Lord and stand with him. They, they hear the Lord and stand with him. Let's notice what happens in verse 7 of chapter 5. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because you multiplied more than the nations that are round about you and have not walked in my statutes, neither have kept my judgments, neither have done according to the judgments of the nations that are round about you. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I, even I, am against thee and will execute judgments in the midst of thee, in the sight of the nations. And he goes on to mentions, mention the abominations, their sin. Notice verse 10. Therefore the fathers shall eat the sons in the midst of thee, and the sons shall eat the fathers, and I will execute judgments in thee, and the whole remnant of thee will I scatter into the winds. Notice in verse 11. Wherefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, surely because thou hast defiled my sanctuary with all thy detestable things and with all thine abominations, therefore will I also diminish thee. Uh, basically, that word uh, phrase diminishing you has to do with shaving you down like his hair was shaved. It goes with that illustration. Neither shall mine eye spare, neither will I have any pity. A third part shall die with pestilence, and with famine shall they be consumed in the midst of thee. A third part shall fall by the sword round about thee. That has to do with their siege, and I will scatter a third part into the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. There, there will be some violence. And all of this, so that Verse 13, they shall know, I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal. And that is emphasized throughout all these judgments. I am the Lord. You're going to know. They will know. Ye will know that I am the Lord. But there's a remnant. God's mercy is never far behind God's judgment. You read through the Bible, God's mercy is never far behind his judgment. It's available. It's right there if people would seek it and find it. And notice how the Lord is uh, really uh, not, not ashamed, but he's, he's, he's heartbroken, I guess is the word. Let's go down to uh, chapter 6, verse 8. He mentions the remnant again. Yet will I leave a remnant that ye may have some that shall escape the sword among the nations, when ye shall be scattered through the countries. And they that escape of you shall remember me among the nations, whither they be carried captives. Because I am broken with their horrors hearts, which, have, which hath departed from me, and with their eyes which go a-whoring after idols, and they shall loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. And they shall know I am the Lord, and that I have not said in vain that I would do this evil upon them. And so here's the idea, is that all the things that God said would happen to Ezekiel in his day and to the people in their day happened. And so whenever later on in the book when he says, here's the future, here's what's going to happen, we know. It will take place just as God says so that people will know that God is God. The word remnant, yathar, means to remain over. And I will leave a remnant. And it's one of four different words that's used for this word remnant throughout Ezekiel. And that's an interesting thing. Four different words for that word remnant. What does the remnant do while hearing and standing with God. What do they do? Let me give you the MVP of Ezekiel and God's remnant. You're thinking about most valuable player, but I'll give you a little bit different than uh, a different MVP than that. The first M is mindful. MVP would be mindful. Now, chapter 6, verse 9, the people are mindful. Notice uh, in the beginning of that verse, uh, they that escape of you shall remember 
me among the nations, whether they shall be carried captive. And so the remnant, what are they like? Who are they? Well, they are remembering the Lord. This means they are mindful of God. They speak to each other of the Lord. They speak to, of the Lord to other nations, those that are around them. Like he indicates here, you're going to remember me among other nations. And they thought about the Lord in their daily life and choices, in their actions. And this reminds me of Proverbs, such a practical book, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So I want to acknowledge God in my choices. I'm thinking about God. I'm mindful of the Lord in my decisions and actions, and then also in the results as well. This, just this last week, many of you watched the Super Bowl, and, and, and some athletes, after they win the World Series or the Super Bowl, some of them will stand up and say something like, I thank God for, and they'll say whatever championship it is or something like that. You know what I'm talking about. They'll say something like that. Okay, I actually had an opportunity to do something like that recently. Last week, our son's team won the local basketball championship. I thought you, I thought you would clap. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> and there we are. We're standing there, and, and they ask for a speech. They ask for a speech. So, uh, okay, I'll give a little speech. And they handed me a microphone. And the first thing, I was thinking about this. Like, what do I want to say? And so the first thing I said was, I thank God for the opportunity to coach this team and to serve our community. And thank you to all the other coaches and people for this junior MBA program. It said some other things and congratulated the team. But I wanted to start out with that, acknowledging God at the start. Now, before you think, I'm patting myself on the back, I'm not. Natalie, my wife, likes to keep me humble. She said, you know, because they gave me the coach of the year as well. They gave me the coach of the year. And uh, she said, you know... <laughs> she said, you know, you're the, only, you're the only coach that doesn't yell and curse at the players. So she helped keep me, keep me humble with that. But <laughs> it's about true. The word acknowledge here is yada, yada, to know, to know, to recognize God first. Now, it's when you're making the decision and also the outcome of your decisions as well. And so let's acknowledge the Lord. Remember the Lord first. Be mindful of him. He's the real MVP. Now, the V is still going to be value. They remain with the Lord. Look at the second part of verse 9. I'm broken with their whorish heart, which hath departed from me, and with their eyes, which go whoring after their idols, and they shall loathe themselves. So the people are showing some kind of remorse here, it seems. And the evils which, which they have committed in all their abominations. The people become ashamed. How did it get to be like this? How is it that we've been carried away? Why is our temple destroyed? How is it that Jerusalem has fallen? They remain with the Lord. They're ashamed of the sin of the people. They're ashamed of their own sin. But keep this in mind, they are also very sensitive to God's feelings about sin. Because God says, I'm broken. His heart was broken by their sin. These are my people. I've given everything, and I'm giving my son for these people. He's going to be doing that, yet they still have wandered away. They remain steady. There's a remnant. There's some that remain steady in their faith and devotion to the Lord, and they're still standing with God. 
they're still considering the Lord first. They see value in remaining with God. This is the remnant. One person wrote a story about him and his son. One night while my young son Ryan was sleeping, a storm began brewing outside. After a loud clap of thunder, I heard Ryan wake up and run to me. When I tucked him back into bed, he asked me to stay with him until he fell asleep. As I lay there with him, I realized Ryan hadn't asked me to make the storm go away, but to stay with him. How many times, I wondered, have I asked God to take away the storms of life instead, when instead I need to ask him to stay with me to go through those storms? So when we remain with God, the storms may not change, but we're still with God. It makes all the difference in the world. This remnant remains with the Lord. They see value in the Lord. James 4, 8 tells us, draw nigh to God. He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. We remain close to God when we confess our sin, but we wander away from God when we hold on to our sins. So today, confess. Turn around from the sin. Any known sin in your life, confess it. Turn it. Turn away from it. And uh, give that to the Lord and go a different way. So, mindful, valuable. Here's the P then, purpose. Purpose then, they rely on the Lord. Verse 10, they shall know that I am the Lord and that I have not said in vain that I would do this evil unto them. There's going to be a remnant who realize when things start to happen, it's all because of God. And I'm going to have to rely on the Lord as I go through whatever he prophesied and said would happen. God does what he says he's going to do. Is that true? Can we believe God's promises? There's a lot of promises in Scripture. Can we believe God's prophecies? That's different than a promise. Can we believe it's like future things? Okay, for him, a lot of future things, chapters 1 through 24, take place right in the middle of the book. And then the rest of it, a lot of it's going to be happening in our future today. So we can trust the Lord. When we stand with the Lord, those around us will come to know the Lord is God. He is the one. He said this would happen. We can believe him. We can take him at his word. Notice in verse 10, the word Lord, it's all capitalized. The verse 11, thus saith the Lord, God smite with thine hand and stamp with thy foot. So here's, he's, and he's clapping his hands. This is what Ezekiel's doing now for this final illustration. Maybe he's jumping up and down. I don't know, but that's what the verse said he's doing. That's what verse, uh, verse 11 says. Thus saith the Lord God, smite with thine hand, stamp with thy foot, and say, Alas, for the evil abominations of the Lord of Israel, or the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, and by famine, by the pestilence. He that is far off shall die by pestilence. He that is near shall fall by the sword. He that remaineth shall be besieged to die by the famine. Thus will I accomplish my fury upon them. Then shall you know, then shall you know, then you will know I'm God. I'm the Lord. Notice it's all caps there again, Lord. Right there in verse 11, Lord God. God is in all caps, Lord's lowercase. There's all different variations of the name of our God. You can see him on the screen, Lord Adonai. That's the lowercase, L-O-R-D, Lord. God is Jehovah, and then Lord. If you ever see in your Bible all caps for Lord or God, it's Jehovah or Yehovah. And uh, it's, it's Yahweh, Jehovah's uh, long a form of, of Yahweh. And so Jehovah is the proper name of Israel's God 
And here's what's so important about it. It indicates relationship. Israel, I will be your God, and you will be my people. It's there, it's how they know God. God is our God, and God is my people. It, it all has to do with relationship. To keep the reader from pronouncing and profaning the sacred name of God, the Masoretes would write, uh, would put vows pointing for Adonai, or Lord, under the consonants of the divine name Yahweh to prompt the reader to pronounce Adonai instead in place of the divine name wherever it appears in the text. And so they had such a respect and an awe and wonder for the proper name of God, which is Jehovah or Yahweh. So that's how this, these names came about. The Lord Adonai is the master of the remnant. He's the master of the remnant. The remnant, like Christians today, see their lives in service and devotion to the one true God. It means no idols, no idolatry, no spiritual adultery. He talks about whoring after these other idols and false gods. No sacrifices for evil, no worship of our own personal or corporate sin. The gods, lowercase, gods of this world, are idols equivalent to a pile of dung. Well, where do you get that? That's in verse 9. Notice, which they go whoring after their idols, which they shall loathe themselves. The word idols here, and Ezekiel made a spelling that is not a natural Hebrew spelling. He used the same uh, some of the same characters that had to do with their Hebrew word dung. And so basically saying these dung manure idols... These dung deities, that's the word right there for idols. You find it's like a, it's a word play. It's a play on words in how he wrote out these things. And it means a detested thing, an idol. So no dung deities for the remnant because that's all they're worth. They're just a pile of dung. That's their value. That's all they can do for you. No one likes stepping in manure. Maybe you've done it on a farm or for your, your cat or, or a dog or something. Nobody likes that. But listen, that's what we do when we have an idol. You step right in it, man. It's gross. It's disgusting. It's, it's a detestable thing. And in a spiritual way, spiritually speaking, when you put something before God, you're stepping in manure. And it's a, it's a shameful thing. What idols are contending for your allegiance today. What are you relying on? Are you relying on the Lord? Are you truly serving the one true God? God's remnant hear the Lord. They stand with him. One man was migrating to America years ago, and he said, have patience with people like me. Pleaded a Russian psychologist who was in Italy waiting to immigrate to the United States from the Soviet Union. Six weeks ago, when I came from the Soviet Union, was the first time I heard something positive about God and about faith in God. He was 29 years old. There are many people like me who are atheists, not because we choose to be atheists, but because we were victims of circumstances. We knew nothing else. 
And this aesthetic teaching or atheistic teaching was forced upon us. We accepted it because we had nothing else to hear and nothing else to believe. Now for the first time, I hear something positive of a positive nature about the Bible and about God and about faith in God. And to tell you the truth, what you believers are saying makes a whole lot more sense than what the atheistic teachers taught us all those years in the Soviet Union. After six weeks of hearing about things about God and about faith, I'm now at the place where my heart is crying out, and I'm saying, I believe, but my head says, you can't believe. You don't understand enough. He says, have, he said, have patience with people like me. You know, God will have patience with a person like that who's still searching but just is, is having a hard time coming to grips or understanding. God is patient. I want you to consider something we read at the very beginning. Ezekiel is also a picture of Jesus. Because God said, when you make that little toy city, and when you're chopping up all your hair, and when you're burning that hair, when you're preaching to the city, he said, I want you to bear the iniquity of Israel for that 390 days. I want you to bear the iniquity, carry the sin of Jerusalem for 40 days. He's a picture of Christ because it was at the cross that he carried our sins. He carried your sins. That's how we have salvation. That's how we have forgiveness. He carried the sin for us. So think about as the remnant, God expects us, his people, to know him. You are a remnant, one of the few who know the Lord and whose life is a sign to the lost around us. Now, Christians are in a minority again. It seems very apparent today. God knows that. But one with God is a majority. One with God is a majority. So as a remnant, as a called out follower of Jesus Christ, a true disciple who is walking in step with the Lord, let's be mindful to remember God in all of our ways. Let's value that we would remain with the Lord no matter the battles and troubles that come around us, the storms of life. And let's know our purpose, that our purpose then is to rely on the Lord. There's a reason for all the things that takes place, and we can trust him in it. Let's take a moment and visit with the Lord. There's just three simple ideas, mindful value and purpose. Are you remembering God? Lord, help me to remember you, to be mindful of you as I make decisions, as I succeed, as I go throughout life. Let me think of you first in what I'm doing, and that's my prayer today. Anyone like that, let me be mindful of God. A lot of hands. God bless you. Let's, let's ask God's help for that. Number two, value. There may be some battles and struggles, some great decisions and difficulties right this very moment. Do you value the Lord enough to remain with him? And Lord, I'm going to remain steadfast with your help. By your grace, I'm going to just stick with it. I'm going to keep valuing our relationship. Maybe that's something that God's challenged you with. Anybody? Yes, I see a lot of hands. Yes, yes, again, let's commit that to God. Then purpose. Are you relying on your own strength? Or are you relying on the Lord? My purpose as a Christian is to let God be known. And that's demonstrated in my faith. My obedience, which demonstrates my faith. My reliance, my allegiance to Christ. So my purpose is to show others I'm relying on God. He is my God. And may God help me with that today. I want to show others, and I want to truly know my purpose to rely on God. Anybody like that? His hands are already shooting up. Thank you. God bless you. 
Let's take a moment and ask the Lord's help with these decisions. And friends, if you've never trusted Christ, today's the day to believe. He carried your burden. He carried your sin to the cross. He paid it all. Let's trust that today if you haven't. Father, we thank you for Ezekiel. We thank you for his willingness to do these bizarre things as illustration, as a as a picture, an object lesson for us, for the people of his day and even us today. We thank you that what you said would happen did take place, and we know that what you say will happen in the future is going to happen. And so increase our faith, help us to take these truths and truly be mindful of you each day and to see the value in remaining with you. And Lord, let us find our purpose and truly rely on you, trust in you each step of the way. If there's a friend without Christ, we, ta- we pray that today they would choose salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for how you've been working in our hearts and lives. We commit these decisions to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.